Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. Hey guys, this is your People of Purpose podcast host, Tanner Badgley. Do you want to get a short email from me? Would you find value in receiving a very short email every other weekend that personalizes your path of purpose? The POP newsletter, because people of purpose, is a very short email where I share with you the most interesting things I've recently discovered, have been thinking about, or implementing into my life each week to more personally and purposefully pursue my purpose. It will include a short update on how my podcast is helping me grow into my purpose, a quote that's been on my mind from a purposeful resource such as a podcast, book, video, or mentor, as well as a nugget of advice from my experience on how to better align and optimize your life for your purpose. And finally, I'll try to share inspiration with you on how one of our listeners is benefiting from people of purpose. So please take a small step of action right now by sending a quick email to peopleofpurposepodcast at gmail.com. You don't even need to write a message. Just include in the subject header, People of Purpose Newsletter, and you'll receive the very next one. Here's to becoming People of Purpose. Uh, My purpose is to live for the reason my creator created me. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word. Those that are forgiven much, love much. Failure is actually those pavers set in a garden that take you to where you're supposed to be. Um, Every success has those pavers. Learning how to create a perfect harmony of that and combine the right notes is really where we make music in life. Jeanette Wood is a mom to 11 and grandmother to four. Her and her husband gave birth to six and have adopted five. Jeanette, or Mrs. Wood as many call her, speaks often on how we can positively change our communities and relationships. One of her most popular topics is the power of intentionality and maximizing ordinary moments. She has spent the last 20 years being a personal mentor to thousands of people across the country as a speaker, coach, and consultant. Jeanette also co-owns a multi-million dollar trucking business with her husband in Topeka, Kansas called Covenant Ranch Trucking, where she is in charge of the marketing. She is also a certified John C. Maxwell trainer and created her own LLC, Seek Do Teach, to help small businesses and entrepreneurs thrive in their businesses and their homes. Jeanette also specializes in customer retention, branding, and communication so that businesses can navigate their growth more purposefully. Mrs. Wood also serves in an advisory position at Children's Mercy Hospital. She loves to travel and has lived in a tent off the grid as well as a six-bedroom mansion. Jeanette reads her Bible every day and is enthusiastic about sharing the power of the family table, so much so that she has spoken on the research of reclaiming the family table and the power of mealtime around a table with friends and family since 2012. Jeanette inspires us to live with eternity in mind, no matter how massive or mundane the task may appear. It was truly a great blessing to meet Jeanette. We met in a beautiful location outside on a perfect early summer afternoon in my hometown of Topeka, Kansas. We met because of a recommendation of an enthusiastic listener to the podcast, Jacob. 
Jacob was actually Jeanette's son-in-law. Jeanette and I met each other through our conversation on this podcast. After walking for only five minutes to the picnic table at the park, we just pressed play. I'd say our relationship started off on the right foot. A week later, I attended the Wood Family Church, and my mom and I came over to their house in the woods to have lunch at their family table. I went swimming in their pool with her kids and grandkids and had wonderful chats with so many members of her family. I think listening to this interview with Jeanette will help you better redefine what it looks like to live a purposeful life. I hope that we can all absorb at least a tiny fraction of the faith and fearlessness with which Mrs. Wood lives her life. She is incredibly tender-hearted and selfless. She's also very much an independent thinker and an authentic trailblazer. For someone that lives so much for others, her self-care habits are also impeccable. This interview is packed full of wisdom, and I'm so thankful to our dedicated listener, Jacob, for reaching out with this wonderful suggestion. I know you'll enjoy this heart-opening, connective, creatively wise conversation with Jeanette Wood. Hello, Jeanette. Hi, Tanner. Mrs. Wood. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. It's a really special occasion to be able to meet a new person through the podcast. Yes, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Outside of the park in good weather. It is beautiful today. Yeah, thank you for meeting me. So for anyone listening, we're in Topeka, Kansas right now, and we're at Gage Park, one of our good parks here, and we're outside at a picnic table. So I want to know, I got your biography through the email. You talked about how you're a mom to 11. You've adopted five of those. You help small business owners and entrepreneurs with customer retention and marketing. And you also have an advisory position at Children's Mercy. Right. So many things. The thing I'm most curious about was how you talked about you um, speak, you travel and speak on reclaiming the family table. Yeah. Why is that so important to you that the family all gets together at the table? Um, and it's so important that you like actually go speak about it. Why? Yeah, that's a great question, Tanner. You know, Ronald Reagan once said that all great change in America begins at the dinner table. And I agree with him. If we're going to fix our fragmented culture, then we need to fix our family table. And I think our table's been fragmented by our society and some of our choices of fast-paced and instant. And yeah. I like to call people back together to recognize people they value most, their friends and their family. Cool. So, yeah. So when you think back about your dinner table, like ever since you were maybe a little girl, did you always love being at the dinner table or was there a certain event that maybe made you realize this is actually a really important space that needs to be valued more than it is? Yeah, uh, that is actually something I never gave credit to. I didn't appreciate the family table as a child. It really? just was expected. I knew that we always ate at the table for dinner and I never thought of that as abnormal or um, special. Once I became an adult, um, I started doing the same thing for my children. But, you know, I think there was one moment that it really resonated with me. And that's when I started taking it and sharing with other people. When one of my older children grew up and they became an adult, uh, they said to me, some of my greatest memories as a child were around the table. And when they said that, I started thinking about how no matter where we've lived, I've lived in a tent with five children. I've lived off the grid with 10 children and I've lived in a nice, beautiful, comfortable home too. Um, but no matter where we lived for my children, for my adult children to come back with a report card that said, it wasn't the house, it wasn't the money, it wasn't the earthy, organic living, it was when we sat at the table. Those were my special memories. So I wanted to share that with other families and remind them before they had to wait for their report card 
to tell them, come back to the table, that's where the most impact is going to be in your family. So what does your family table look like? How many are there at a time? It's huge. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, we have 11 children and three are married and we have four grandbabies now. So uh, also have my parents live with us. So the children's grandparents are in our home. So we have 20 people at the table and uh, we just had my sons go out and get some lumber from Lowe's and build us some tables. You know how you have, I don't know the technical name, I'm not a contractor, but they're those beams that like hold porches up. What do you uh-huh. call those? We just we took those and we painted them white. Uh, I think the ones we have right now are white. We've done this a few times. We cut them in half and turn them over. We make them into the legs of the table. And we take oh. boards and we sand them and stain them. And we have a beautiful table. Everyone comes to my home and thinks I have this really expensive table. And instead, it was a table built by my son, built by my son-in-law. Uh, one afternoon right before Thanksgiving dinner. And then the other table we have that was built like that was built by my husband and his friend. So... Um, our tables mean something to how us. How many have you been able to squeeze around the table? Uh, probably 20 is how big, you know, it's big table. So we can squeeze 20 of us around the table. And then sometimes the grandbabies are off to the side. We have a little table, again, that was made for them, a little picnic table. Do you guys have some sort of like um, ceremony at the beginning? Do you, do you say grace? Do you have something that brings everyone together? You know, growing up as a little girl, I remember my grandmother used to have this metal triangle with a metal stick. Have you seen those? Yeah. And she would she would do that when oh, it was mealtime. Really? And so go ding, 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 ding. I remember that as a child. The classic. Yeah. Calling people that didn't. And that's how we would get called as growing up. I remember that. We don't do anything. We just say, hey, guys, it's time to eat. And since I have eight boys, I always say I have baby carnivores. And they kind of hurdle, you know, or huddle. <laughs> Not hurdle, but huddle wherever the food is. I don't really have to call them. Not so much. Huh. Just it's dinner time and we all come and eat. Uh, we do normally pray before we eat and we sing a song. And typically one of the other children asks for what the song could be. So sometimes a grandbaby will ask for ABCs to be sung. And another time they might ask for Jesus Loves Me or a hymn to be sung. But Or recently, Happy Birthday because it was someone's birthday. And you've been able to hang on to that through the turmoils of adolescence and being a teenager and all those sort of things too. Yeah, most important time. How do you keep rebellious kids at the, t- at the table wanting to sing songs with their mom and dad? You know, statistically, there's, done, there's been a lot of research done on this. In fact, over 20 years, have, research has been done on the power and the impact of the family table. So it's not just my ideas. Okay. Um, but with some of those studies, they actually show that children who eat at the family table at least four times a week are 91% better in school. For their grades, they get higher grades. They have a 60% um, less chance of being obese. And um, they also have reduced suicide, depression, and their relationships with their parents are tremendously better than kids who don't eat at the family table. So if you want to prevent that terminalist, rebellious kid stage, I would say that you start by having mealtime at the table. And is it kind of buffet style? You just pick pick what you want? Sometimes it is. You know... Sometimes when I go around and I speak, I think a lot of women think, no way. There's not any practical way I can add one more thing on my to-do list, right? They're thinking of a 50s, um, leave it to beaver style, you know, mom did all the work at the table. And what I like sharing with people is that that's not what it's about. It's not a TV show. It's about real life. So having your son or your daughter help you in the kitchen, putting leftovers on the table and making them in a new creative way. We do what I call recipes of remembrance. And I encourage people that when you eat, 
to talk about why that recipe is important to you. Was it given to you from a grandparent? Do you remember that grandpa used to always hate pickles? Or what do you remember about the food to get the conversation going and to instill value and it kind of anchors our families to know that we came from somebody else. What's one of those recipes that you you keep coming back to? Recipes of remembrance. I think my favorite one is a cheesecake recipe that a friend made for me. She was a stranger to me. I had given birth to my third son. He was born 25 weeks um, gestation. And it became news in our community that he was fighting for his life. And this woman brought me a meal. And in it was included her cheesecake recipe. (laughs) And so I asked her. It was so yummy and so good. I asked her if she would teach me how to make it. And 25 years later, we still make that cheesecake recipe. And we share the story of a stranger that brought me a meal. And he became a dear, dear friend. Wow, that's quite the story of gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. So do you invite new people to the table like that too? All the time. Wow. All the time. I feel like once we... It's kind of like plan B or step two, right? Once we come to the table, once we realize the significance of the table and we see the impact it's making with people we know that are in our circle, that it's our obligation to reach out to strangers and invite them to the table. So I'm constantly inviting people in my community, whether it's my cashier or my coffee barista, to join me around my table. And then how do you deepen the conversation at the table? Are you intentionally thinking like, oh, I want to drive a conversation to be able to to uncover something that someone's struggling with or to highlight uh, an achievement or is it just free flow you just see how things go right are yeah. you a director or are you just like you no know, it's authentic it's authentic there's no planned in fact i think that uh, when the conversations are planned or manipulated the guests can feel that way yeah. and the table is supposed to be a place of significance a place of trust and so very important to me that everyone at the table just feels comfortable And if that means that we're laughing and talking about the weather, it's going to be significant laughter and significant conversation about the weather. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, And then I'm also just curious as a millennial, like phones definitely are just with us all the time. What are your rules about technology at the table? They don't. (laughs) Yeah, the table and technology doesn't come together. So as you remember, I'm a mom of 11, so I'm a mom to millennials, right? Uh And that is one thing that I've had to stress to the family. We have a little plastic rubber bucket, and all cell phone devices have to go in there. No cell phones are allowed during the table time. Yeah. And how do you handle, like, kids staying after school for sports or for an activity or for traveling? Unexpected service that you're needed for at 7 p.m.? How do you handle all that stuff when there's okay. you can just trust yeah. that you throw the phone away for a while and life works itself out? It does, right? There was life before the cell phone. There yeah. really was, <laughs> and I I remember to tell my family that. So, um, but you know, I think that's a really legitimate concern is we have you know children that are involved in activities and then we have husbands that have different work schedules and we have work schedules as wives and then we have community events that we're involved in and that can pull us away from the family table and it's really passing to come back and make it a priority so that um those other things become secondary. And I know that may sound um, cliche or it could even sound impossible to your listeners, but what I would like to challenge is just some out of the box thinking. You don't have to eat dinner at five o'clock if that does not work for your family. And with all the research that's been done, 
that has been on four meals a week that's shared together as a family or as a community. Yeah. If you're single and you just have friends that come together, if you just share four meals around a table in conversation with others, um, you you uh, benefit from the results of that and the impact of the family table. So we don't have to do it every single day. We don't have to be perfect at this. It's not about being perfect. And we can also eat mealtime whenever it works for our family. So if that means that your family eats at 7.30 in the evening instead of 5 at night, or that you do your mealtime as a breakfast because you're all in the same house at the same time, whatever works for you. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's one thing I love about different communities. Um, so I play Ultimate Frisbee, and I've been in Thailand playing it. And so we'll have about 25 people, 30 people that um, meet up on a Wednesday night and Saturday night. And inevitably, like a large group goes out to dinner afterwards. And yeah. that combination of playing sports together and then eating together, and it just like really revitalizes me with joy. And it does. Happiness. And yeah, like it's very obvious now when you say it, but right. that's a very no brainer thing you should try to be doing every week. It's so important. You know, our family last year, this week, in fact, uh, went to Europe. We went to uh, London, Oxford, Normandy, Paris, and Rome. And one of the things that I loved about being there as, you know, just my passion being food, being family table, was the way that they eat and the way that they dined. And I found it interesting that in America, when we go out to eat, uh, we are ushered out right away. And people are taking our plates as soon as we're it's done. Business, and yeah. Yes. And over there, we were allowed to sit and talk and laugh for hours. Yeah. It was just so refreshing and encouraging. It made me never want to get out of my seat. Yeah. So, And nobody was complaining. There were people out yeah. waiting, but they were all visiting and talking too. Nobody was in a hurry to have their seat. So, yeah, yeah, I've heard about that European style of eating. It sounds amazing. Love for, it. For that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. America needs to learn something about that. Cool. We would benefit. How does purpose play a role in this? Like, my podcast is about purpose, and I want to know, how does the family table um, help your family kind of find, is it collective purpose, or do you help each individual find their own sense of purpose? Or How do you think the family table has impacted purpose for everyone? I think when you come together around uh, the table, what you're saying is that that person that's sitting at the table has value and meaning to you. It is a very intentional act that you've invited them to dine with you. Yeah. And so now I've just invested value into you. And so as my purpose, I personally believe that uh, my purpose is to live for the reason my creator created me, right? And so I am created for his purpose. So if I'm created for my creator's purpose, I will find the most satisfaction when I'm doing that. And for myself, I've found that that's when I'm pouring into other people, investing value into them and helping them achieve their dreams. All of a sudden, I find such great satisfaction. I, I begin to thrive when I'm doing things like that. So the family table is a very practical way to do that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I love how you just have this, this common thread of um, the more service you give, the more you find your sense of purpose and fulfillment and joy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Talk yeah. about that more. How does how does service play a role in your life? Like, you just feel constantly motivated to, to look for how you can help others, or what is it that's really driving the service? I give credit to my parents for that. Um, I grew up where it was just my brother and I. My brother um, became a police officer. And I went into nursing. I was a nurse until I came home to be a mom and then became a business owner. 
But my parents instilled into both of us a sense of service and serving other people and not living for ourselves. Yeah. And when I become shallow in my thinking and start to very uh, become very small in my thinking and just look inward at me or my own circle, I find that that's, those are my greatest times of depression or my greatest times of frustration. But when I start looking out at other people and how I can serve them or how I could fix something or how I can make their life easier, I am completely driven. So. You're not ever scared that you're going to give away all your resources or all your time. Or you can't. Your energy. You never. Yeah, it does. Right. It just, that's what rejuvenation does, right? Yeah. So the more that I serve and pour my life into other people, the more life I actually have to pour into other people. Now, I know there's a lot about self-care and taking care of ourselves. You know, you have to make time for that space so that you can give your best to other people. But there's harmony in in both and, and making sure you're doing both and never one too much. So So what do you do for self care? Every day. Um I pray and read my Bible. And that's something that's super important to me. My grandfather, when he was ninety one at his ninety first birthday, he said he was asked, uh, what's the greatest lesson that you could give all of us here? And he said, Read your Bible every day and do what it says. And that has meant a lot to me, whether I'm in a corporate business meeting or whether I'm changing a diaper for a child. Read my Bible and do what it says every day. And so that's how I start every day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah, I've been in this routine of um, listening to the audio Bible on YouTube as I drive to work. Yes. I've been listening a lot to the New Testament. And, like, today was Acts. Um, And... I keep hearing like a lot of things about forgiveness and that mm-hmm. um, through Jesus, and I'm, go- I'm going to the school and I see all of these like uh, instances where somebody wronged somebody first, and so that's why they deserve to get hit or something mean was said back, and then they deserve to retaliate. And I noticed today it came to me like I can't recall the words right now, but the words kind of came to me that like cleared up the situation for them. It's like. Yeah, he wronged you, but you don't need to own that. You you forgive him and move forward out of that, and then you're both left in a more peaceful way instead of harming both of you. Right. You kind of see how, with like little kids as an example, both of them will end up crying and sitting on the wall and hurt because they were in a fight. Neither one of them is winning. Right. But like Jesus talks about, is the, the greater person forgives, and then that's ultimately the way you heal yourself yes. by doing that. It's cool to, to see those lessons play out with like kids in the school. And I agree that reading the Bible is, for me, the impetus for thinking about that mm-hmm. when I was at school. So I'm trying to read my Bible, but it's hard. Yeah, It's yeah. a big book to carry around, first off. Right. But the audio version of it is helpful to me. Well, you know, what you just said confirms that the Word of God says that His Word will not return void. And what you just said explained happened you heard the word and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word so you heard the word and then it did not return void it's taking a work in your life and you were able to apply that in a situation for someone else and now pour the word into them and so um i believe it's so important you know in our family we have read the book of proverbs um, over 2,000 times we read, wow. so whatever day it is, if it's 
um, what's today, the 22nd, mm-hmm. we read Proverbs 22nd or 22. Wow. And uh, then something else we do with our children is whatever their birthday is. So I have a little boy who's born August 22nd. Today is his birthday Proverbs. And so that means he memorizes that book of or that chapter of Proverbs, the 22nd chapter. And on the 22nd, he gets to say his birthday Proverbs. So at any rate, we read the book of Proverbs every day as a family. And we definitely did when the kids were younger. As they've grown older, it's been harder to all gather and do devotions every day. But we do... That is our goal and our aim. But I had a son one time, my oldest son, and we had read the book of Proverbs many times. And he said, Mama, can we please stop reading the book of Proverbs and read something else? And I said, do you think we've gained all the wisdom there is out of the book of Proverbs? He put his head down. He said, just keep reading. (laughs) There's so much wisdom in the word of God. You can never get enough. And no matter how many times you listen to it or how many times you read it, we've read through the Bible as a family from cover to cover five times, maybe more. But each time we read it, we are all, there's always a time where somebody's going, I never remember that. Did that happen? So um, keep reading, keep listening. And at the time you need it, it will have it and complete the good work it started in you. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I definitely agree with that. believe that wholeheartedly. So you say that faith comes by listening. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's right. So yeah, what, what caused you to have this kind of faith in the word of God? Yeah. Um, Well, I grew up in a home where I heard the Word of God. I also grew up in a home where my parents spent a lot of time teaching me to memorize Scripture. And so I had that as a child. Um, I didn't have faith in Christ until I was in my early 20s. And I had lived a pretty rebellious life and um, very self-seeking life. And it was finally a woman at my son's daycare that invited me to go to church with her. And at that moment, I knew for myself the murky waters that had been blurring my vision um that was like all gone and all of a sudden i could see clearly my need for forgiveness you know i I never doubted that there was a god i knew there was a god but i don't think i ever stopped to think about how much i needed his forgiveness and when i finally came to that realization that i can't be good enough and i can't get it right I'm going to need forgiveness. I'm not going to ever get to a point where I just have learned enough or I get it right. I'm going to always need forgiveness. And so it was time to come to my creator and ask him for forgiveness and surrender my life to him. So how does that play out today? Um, How do you find forgiveness in your day-to-day life? Does it it help you maybe just act more more easily without worrying so much about um, if I'm doing it the exact perfect way? What kind of impact does it have today to recognize that you have that kind of forgiveness? Well, if you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll remember a story in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Jesus is um, is with a group of Pharisees, I believe, at the time. And his disciples are concerned because a woman begins washing his feet with her tears. Yeah. And do you remember this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And his reply to them is... Um, those that are forgiven much love much. Mm-hmm. And that's really how I find my own personal walk with Christ is I've been forgiven much. And so that drives me to love much. Um, Paul, I've often shared this with my family that in Paul, he, ta- uh, him, Paul, if, in the Bible, Paul talks about um, that because of everything he's done and everything he's been through, that that spurred him on to serve God more. And I would have to agree. You know, all those experiences encourage us to love more and serve more. 
So Paul went to prison for, for what he was right. trying to spread afterwards. And, right. Um, yeah, like what kind of sacrifices do you think you're making to get out the, the truth like that? You know, nothing compared to Paul, right? I've not been shipwrecked. I've not been beaten. I have not been in jail. Um, But I have been a very authentic, real mom and a woman. And um, there is pain. And parenting's not easy. And especially when we're doing it with eternity in mind. And um, it can become overwhelming. It can become discouraging. And I think that faith and that um, hope that we have in Christ is what keeps us going and saying, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to appeal to this child one more time to find hope and rest in Christ. So, um, I, yeah, nothing compared to Paul. I haven't sacrificed anything like that at all. <laughs> so. so you said your sacrifice is being authentic. What, is, yeah. what do you mean? What does being authentic mean to you? Being authentic and not having to be fake, not having to be pretend. Um, I don't have to be one person in a corporate business meeting and another person at home with my children. I can be the same, very real person. I might dress different. You know, you'll find me in my sweats at home and you wouldn't out of respect, right? Um, I dress for the occasion, but the person that I am and my beliefs, my core values are sincere no matter where I'm at. And I don't believe that somebody should ever find us speaking in a group um, in one place that we wouldn't feel comfortable speaking in another group that in that place. So, um, yeah, authentic is really, really important to me. So, I guess what, what I want to go to now is um, you've decided to adopt five kids and you are a mom to six biologically is that right that's right why did you decide to do that and how does um how is that authentic to who you are that's very unique in your authenticity and most people are not adopting half of their kids right and in such high numbers so what about that speaks to your authenticity or your purpose to be able to have so many which is like a lot you know a large sacrifice you're making on your personal life and then um to adopt five yeah. You know, when my husband and I dated, we talked, we would sit, I can still remember the garden, actually, where we would sit and we would talk about adopting children someday. And it was just something that was always in us. We had a heart for kids. We hated to see children hurt or growing up not knowing their real potential and not knowing how valuable they were. And so over the years, we talked to my family about adopting, and this was a new idea in my family. And so uh, nobody was really on board with it for a while. After our sixth child, my parents came to me and they said, you know, you guys have always talked about adopting and we think you should consider it. And so I knew that the time was right because I did not want to bring a child into our family unless aunts, uncles, grandma, grandpa, everybody was on board for adopting that child. I wanted that child to really come in and be loved from everyone, not just us, right? right. Not just this little nucleus. So um, that's when we started pursuing adopting. We thought we'd adopt one and um, the Lord had different plans. And each child has a story, a unique story of how God brought them to us. Our first adoption was a little boy named Samuel. He has fetal alcohol syndrome, and his story is one of uh, trauma and neglect and abuse, and um, he is a wonderful young man right now. He struggles with his FAS, but the doctor, I think it was about six months ago, he told Sammy, Sammy, you're the highest functioning FAS little boy I know. And Sammy replied, 
that's because of my mom. <laughs> it's probably just because I didn't let him get away with anything. No excuses. You're going to be your best. No matter what your best is, you're going to be your best. So um, that was our first little boy. And then on a January day, now this is when we lived in California. So January there is like 40 degrees. <laughs> it's yeah. not like the Northern Midwest. California, right. Yeah. And um, we got a phone call. And this woman on the other line, she said, you don't know me, but I know you. And I know you adopted a little boy with FAS. We just had a prison inmate who's wanting to give up her baby for adoption. And I think the doctors think he's going to have FAS. Would you be willing to adopt him? And my reply was, can you legally call me and do this? I mean, I had no idea. So I called our um, social worker that did our home study. She checked into it. She's like, it's legit. This woman heard about you and she'd like you to consider adopting this little boy. The little boy came home with us and he lived with us for nine months. And right before the adoption was to be completed, uh, two weeks before, a grandmother stepped up and said she wanted to adopt him. And the judge awarded that he was to go back to his grandma. Wow. And he had never even met her. We had never even knew that she existed. I mean, I'm sure so she you existed. you went and fought for him in court right We away. did. We did. And uh, the judge ordered that I return him within two weeks. And so for two weeks, I met her every day for several hours and just shared with her who he was. And then he would get to know her. And I How shared long had you had him at that point? Nine months. And so um, in the process of talking with her, what we realized that we did not know is that across the street from us, there was a foster home with his half brother and sister. And we had been playing, my children had been playing with those children, but we never knew they were related. And so um, she ended up getting all three children. It was heartbreaking, to say the least. I remember dropping him off, and I drove away. I couldn't see the road. I was sobbing so hard. And I pulled over, and now this isn't going to sound very spiritual, okay? So this is being authentic. But I pulled over, and I just sobbed. And I felt like the Lord told me, if you give him to me, I'll give him back. And my exact reply was, what can you do now? The judges of the land have spoken. There's nothing you can do. Right. Well, I went home. I told my husband to sell our home. I didn't ever want to walk down the halls again uh, without our baby there. And he did. He sold our home. We moved into another home. And within four months, we received a phone call from a social worker. And she said, I just wanted you to know there's been a situation of abuse and we are removing Matthew and his two half-brothers and sisters. Would you adopt all three of them? And so that was at 1030 at night. And we said, absolutely. And so we adopted them. It was a three-year battle to adopt them that we went through. Yes. So that's, that's how Matthew came to us. And then how our Ezekiel and Sarah came to us. We had 10 children. We moved to Kansas um, in 2008, and we just kept getting this idea. My kids tease me because what happens is we'll be playing at the park or doing something, and all of a sudden I get this feeling like somebody's missing. And I'll tell the kids, hey, you're all here, but it feels like somebody's missing. And every time I've felt that way, we've adopted somebody. So the, the children now tease me that now it's going to mean their spouses will be coming. <laughs> so they're like, no more kids are coming. It's our spouses. But I haven't had that feeling in a long time. But anyways, we moved to Kansas. I had this feeling uh, that there's still somebody else for our family. And we did the home study, which isn't cheap when you're 10 children and you have to be fingerprinted and background right. searched and everything. And um, we waited. We waited for a year. Everyone in my family, even my parents, everybody knew that we were waiting to adopt. And we were just praying for this child as we waited. We we're actually hoping for a girl since we have so many boys. Um, 
And it got to be time where we were going to have to renew the home study again. And it was going to be expensive. And we were just thinking, you know, is this our own idea? We don't want to waste our time, waste our money, our energy. Are we really supposed to be adopting another child? I'm not bored. I don't need to adopt a child, right? <laughs> and, um, and so we all prayed about it. Fifteen minutes later, we received an email from our adoption attorney saying that a woman had given birth to a little boy with Duchenne's um, muscular dystrophy, and the adoptive family backed out, and we came to mind, and he was wondering if we'd be interested. So we you said, just say yes to every offer like So this? we said yes. <laughs> we said yes, and then he, um, he turned it to the social workers that were in charge. They approved us, and our little boy was home with us within a couple of days, and he's now seven. And that's all. We're, we're done. We, ha- we don't feel like we need any more right now. I think we realize we're old. <laughs> yeah. You don't have as much energy when you're in your 20s. Um, but I'd do it all over again in a heartbeat. So uh, one of the little ones we adopted has mental illness. And our journey hasn't um, been all roses. You know, it's been hard walking um, that journey with her and through some of her poor choices. It's been hard on the entire family. Um, but... I would still do it again because it's made me a better person and it's made each one in the family a better person. If you're a teacher looking for a summer job that allows you to travel as far away from the classroom as you possibly can and still make good money, I have the perfect job for you. One way I was able to spend my last year and a half living in Asia and seeing so much in North America was because I worked online. I taught English online to Chinese students through VIP Kid. VIB Kid is one of the fastest growing startups in China. It started in 2014 and is growing rapidly because they pay teachers well, allow you to work from anywhere in the world with a stable Wi-Fi connection, and allow you to make your own schedule amongst all kinds of other support and benefits. VIB Kid uses their own platform and materials for their students that, in which they place students at their appropriate levels. They also do all the scheduling and payroll for you. You don't have to worry about the hassles of building lessons or curriculum either because VIP Kid has already done it for you. Classes are one-on-one video calls with students ages 5 to 12 in China. You just fill in your time slots and you're good to go. A class is essentially a 25-minute Skype or Zoom video session with an awesome kid and you work through the activities on the slides with them. The part I love is that you can work from the beach, the mountains, or any continent in the world. I've worked from Yosemite National Park, Montreal, Canada, New York City, the islands of Thailand, and the Philippines, just to name a few. Just make sure you have a stable Wi-Fi connection and your availability aligns with the after-school hours in China. Find out for yourself why more than 40,000 teachers and 300,000 students teach and learn with VIP Kid, and explore the greater world around you without having to forgo your paycheck. Trust me, the 20 to 30 bucks an hour will go a long way in most countries. So, what are you waiting for? Sign up today and start teaching as often as you wish. If you have a bachelor's degree, are a native English speaker from North America, and have teaching experience, experience can be loosely applied, you stand a strong shot with this rapidly expanding company. You don't have to be a formal teacher, the key is experience in teaching. VIP Kid will certainly open up your world like it has mine. To get started, just follow the links I've included in the episode show notes and sign up with my referral code 0275KC and we'll both get up to $100 in rewards once you teach your first class. Share culture, 
Open up the world for your students and begin your paid vacation today with VIP Kid. So talk about more of that the voice of God that's speaking to you. Yeah. You're just always eager to say yes anytime that you have any inkling that this is God speaking to you. How do you know for sure that it's God speaking to you or if it's just something, you know... My own vain ideas, right? Yeah. Yeah. Your own selfish, I don't know selfish yeah. desire, but no, your own true. desires. Yeah, it's true. Totally. It could be selfish and my definitely very sinful um, desires. Well, there's a couple of things. Remember earlier we were talking about being in the Word. So the more that I'm in the Word, the more that I'm praying, um, the more that I'm listening, which is reading the Word of God, then the more my thoughts are transformed. So the more I'm challenged to not be drawn to my own lusts and desires. But I still do. For example, um, my son, one of my sons, Matthew, he is number 10 and um, out of the children, out of the birth order. And he got a text message. He used my phone, and he got a text message from a new friend that he had, and it came, you know, to my phone. So I see it, and it just looks a little hokey to me, right? I, they had this link, and then it said, "Can we be friends?" And so my mind is like, uh, "This is a bad person trying to talk to my son." They don't realize they're texting my phone, and so my son, I tell him. And I said, Matthew, I want you to be really careful because I think this is a bad person. And then he said, no, Mama, they sent me a link to the game to invite me to be their friend, right? Um, That's what that all meant. And I was like, oh, Matthew, you can't do that to your mom because instantly my thoughts go to my child being abducted and then me planning your funeral and what I'm going to say about you and your life. You just can't do this. Vain thoughts are with us. No matter who we are, no matter how much time we spend in the Word, what happens is that we take those thoughts captive. And that's what the Scriptures tell us, is to take those thoughts captive. And so when I have thoughts that are my own, I'm always asking the Lord to reveal it to me, show me. And if they're mine, I want to take them captive and get rid of them, be done with it. If they are God's thoughts, no matter how big it is, no matter how... um, impossible the dream sounds or the thought sounds if it's God's he'll make a way and so I want to always be listening to that and like I shared earlier in my other story I'm very human there's times where I tell God God I don't think you could do this this is impossible um I know that scriptures say all things are possible for God and nothing is impossible and but I'm human too and in the moment it can feel like things are impossible right so why did you move to Kansas yeah, well, you remember the economy um, recession that we had and the collapse of real estate. And that had an impact on my husband's employers that he'd been with for many, many years, truck driving in California. And so um, another time where the Lord just opened up the doors and showed us, I want you to move to Kansas. And my husband found a job in Frito-Lay, and within a couple of weeks we were here. And then the Lord shut doors for Frito-Lay and let my husband start his own trucking company. And again, it was all orchestrated. And now looking back, we can say, oh, this was God's plan all along. And it was perfect. At the time, it was very overwhelming to leave our home state of California with 10 children, sell everything there. I mean, we even sold the fence around our 40 acres. And all those relationships. Like, yes. You seem like a huge we knew, relationship person. Exactly. We knew nobody here. And... Um, and so it was very, very scary, but there was that piece that, no, we're doing exactly what we need to do. And so you just move forward, and now looking back, like I said, it's been perfect. It's been exactly what we should have done. And you like Kansas? Absolutely, yes. I say my boundaries have fallen in pleasant places. So, cool. Yeah. So, yeah, 
obviously your husband is beside you for all of this parenting yep. and decision making. Absolutely. Talk about your relationship. How did you guys, how did you know that you were each meant to spend, spend your life or eternity together? And then how did you, uh, how do you talk through whether or not you should be adopting kids and, and you know, deal with the, the impacts of mental illness and things like that? Right. Yeah. Well, my husband also um, will share this story is that when we first met, it was at a Bible study, a college Bible study at our church. And I was coming in from work and my husband looked up and when he looked up, he said, without even thinking, he said, wow, God, you really outdid yourself. And at that moment, he felt like he knew for sure I was supposed to be his wife. Now, when he came and wow. told, yes. So when he came and told me that, I told him he was off his rocker. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I rejected him over and over and over again and told him, no way, you're not hearing from God. No, no, this is not true. Well, you had zero percent attraction to him? None. And he, we're, <laughs> we are complete opposites. And then I started to fall in love with him and who he was. And he is the most sensitive, caring, intelligent man that I know. Um, Joe is a peacemaker. He has always seen the best in people. Um, he has taught me so much. I'm more of a um, go-getter, fighter. I grew up with a dad that wrestled with me, you know, and, and so that's who I am. And my husband is more of um, mindful, reaction, always thinking of consequences. And so we ground each other really, really well. But we've always been on board with adopting. That's just something that was a dream for both of us. It wasn't ever like I had a dream and I brought it to him. Um, however, there was a time when someone uh, wrote me and her daughter uh, was pregnant and was going to give the baby up for adoption. And she asked me if I would, if our family would consider adopting the baby. And so I took it to the family in a meeting, you know, I said, Hey, we need to have a family meeting. And all the kids were there and Joe, and I told him the story and before I could finish it, he said, Jeanette, you're a collective, you're a collective child, you're a child collector or uh -huh. something like, oh, that's what it was. No, no, I get it. He said, you're an obsessive child collector. <laughs> and we all laughed about it, but, um, OCC. yeah, that was the only time that he's ever said, but all the family voted no on that too. They all felt like, no, nope, this isn't the, the time or this isn't for us. So that was fine. Have you ever overstretched yourself and quote unquote failed? As you've, as you've tried to be this master servant of everyone? Yeah. Um, I fail all the time. Yeah. I fail all the time. I'm not afraid of failing. Um, I think that a lot of people get this notion in their mind that failure is a bad thing. And, and what I would really like to encourage your listeners to just ponder a little bit is that failure is actually those pavers set in a garden that take you to where you're supposed to be. Um, every success has a failure, has those pavers. And I remember one time with my husband, and I learned this from him. We were laying in bed after some failure that we had had. And I tried thinking today what, what it was that at the time seemed so monumental, but I can't even remember. But I just remember feeling like a complete and utter failure. And I'm talking to him and I'm like, how can you not feel like we failed? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that 28 years later, I don't even remember what it was, but I was, I remember having this conversation with him and he looked at me and he said, as long as we apply all that we've learned, we've never failed. And so my husband was really the I one, love that response. yeah, he really transformed my ideology on failure. Mind. 
And now I'm not afraid of failing. Do I like it? No, it's uncomfortable. But one thing I do keep in mind is that I'm going to be a different person when I get through this failure. And I'm going to like who I am because I'm going to be very intentional on how I respond to the failure. Um, we can't change what happens to us. We can't change the way other people think and the way they act. But I have absolute, complete control over the way I respond to them. And so if in the same token with failures, I have complete um, control of how I respond to that failure. So I can make it a success. Yeah. Yeah. But all the time. I fail constantly. So knowing that it's always going to be okay to fail, are you more likely to take risks now that you're older and have failed several times than when you were younger? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely take more risks now. I would say I most people younger. in the generation older than me would say the opposite answer. That they when took it, risks when they were younger, and now they're... Now they've learned like, not to, so. right? No. No, I Why take more risks now. Uh, because I'm not afraid of failure. I'm not afraid of what's going to happen. I truly believe that uh, if I feel like I'm being obedient to do what God's called me to do, then there's nothing for me to lose. You know, it's... Um, I. I'm sorry to refer to this so much, but when you're reading the Bible or listening to the Bible, the Lord talks about how obedience is better than sacrifice. He doesn't want our sacrifices of our time or our tithe or, or us coming and asking him for forgiveness all the time. I mean, and offering penance for that. That's not what he's wanting. What he's wanting is obedience to his purpose and his plan for our life. And so if we're doing that, whether that's me living in a tent, which I've done, or whether that's me living in a 6,000 square foot, beautiful, comfortable home, which I've done, I'm just obeying. It doesn't matter all the details in between. It just mattered, was I obeying? So, yeah, I totally take more risk. But see, I didn't know that when I was younger. So when I was younger, it was more reckless, not risk. Yeah, it wasn't, okay. Yeah. So how do you make goals? Like, how do you put any stake in, like, where I want to be in five years when you're also just at the whims of wherever God wants to take you? Right. Yeah, there's both. Yeah. So I'm really big about balance. I I actually um, reject the term of balance. I don't believe that we find balance. I believe we find harmony. And there's seasons for things. There's a time where my business is going to take a lot from me. And then there's a time where my family is going to get more of me. So learning how to create a perfect harmony of that and combine the right notes is really where we make music in life. I take cello lessons every Wednesday. And now I am not a celloist. Um, And I don't do it for anyone in the world to listen to me. I do it because it's my time to get away for half an hour in the week and challenge myself to learn something. And so um, I was, I think, 45 when I started, or maybe 47 when I first started taking lessons. And uh, I was sharing with her one time about this idea of harmony. And she said, that's true, Jeanette, because, and she was kind of resonating with it. She said, we wouldn't take one note and combine it with another note you know, a different chord or right. you have to combine the right notes. And so in life and setting goals, it's about learning how to combine the right notes at the right time. And I definitely um, am very strategic and mindful of what I'm investing in. Because remember, if I'm investing in an activity or something, um, it's got to be for my purpose. And that purpose is to glorify my creator. So I've got to, everything gets weighed against that. Yeah. How do you weigh that process? Yeah. Uh, 
again, right? Prayer, reading, reading the word, listening more than I talk. Do you seek outside counsel ever, or do you trust your own thoughts on the topic more? Oh, no, absolutely not. Um, one of the things that I've learned, one of my greatest lessons that I've ever learned is this idea of independent thinking and the power of collaboration. And again, there's harmony in both of those. You have to be an independent thinker who actually sees power and profit in collaboration. So is if I isolate myself and my thoughts and my ideas and I don't listen to counsel, and when I say listen to counsel, I am not talking about listening to people that agree with me. I want people who are different than me. I want to hear real counsel. I want to be able to trust what they say, even if it's different than what I want to hear. I have one friend. She's a kick in the pants. And I always tell her that. I say, Shannon, you are a kick in the pants. You crack me up. The other day, she very, very uh, um, real, very quick. She responded, that's because I'm the friend that will always say how it is. It's like, that's right. And that's why I love you. Um, she is a woman that just speaks and just says it. And it, she calls a spade a spade. And I love those kind of people in my life. So I surround myself with a lot of different types of people. Yeah. Yeah. And what is it that causes you to trust somebody? Is it the fact that they're that you see that they're they're blatantly speaking the truth to you, or what kind of factors do? No, I what think. What do you factor into trusting somebody? Yeah, Tanner. You know what? All of us as humans, me, you, everybody, we're not one hundred percent trustworthy all the time. In fact, I doubt any of us are fifty percent trustworthy. There's times where our own motivations, our own life experiences can keep us from being able to see something else in, in somebody or what their will or God's will for them might be. We consider, um, sometimes we put God in a box where we're like, this is God's will all the time, right? And so we have to do it this way. And I just think as far as like putting your trust in people, you can't. So that long story to tell you, People are not trustworthy, but God is. And God brings people into our lives for reasons. We can learn from them. Even the people that have a negative role in our life, we can learn something from. And whether it be like the kids that you were helping in learning forgiveness, or whether it be somebody who I'm learning from by their consistency or their tenacity or whatever it is. So, no, I don't trust people. I trust God to bring those people into my life. And then I stand as an observer to see why God brought those people in my life. So everyone's involved in my life for me to invest into them all the time. There's some way I can invest in you. Um, and then also to be a recipient. There's some way this person's going to invest in me. So in a sense, is, is everybody a role model to you? Absolutely. In some way, you're teaching me something. Yep. Wow. That's yeah. a new way of thinking about role models. Yeah. How do you attach yourself to, to certain role models? How do you know who is really, really healthy for you to be around? Is it everyone or do you, you, you keep an inner circle? How do, you, sure. how do you determine who belongs in that inner circle? Again, realizing that you can't trust people. People are human, right? I mean, I just we have to get rid of this notion that we can have high expectations for someone to be a role model for us. I've been in that place where people have looked up to me and they've thought, oh, I really like this person or Mrs. Wood this or Mrs. Wood that. And it's one of the most troubling things for me to hear because I know 
how far um, how far I fail. I know my shortcomings, and I think that instead of trying to be role models for each other, if we were just living authentic, if we were just being real and transparent, and saying this is where I hurt, this is where I failed, this is where I succeeded. Hey, guess what? This worked. If we were just doing that with each other, that would make that person a role model for me. Yeah. And so those people are far and few between, you know. (laughs) So ultimately, like, the people in your inner circle and your your closest role models are people that draw out the the greatest depth of authenticity within yourself? Sure, sure. Or I'm drawing out the greatest authenticity of them. Um, You know, I tell my kids this. When when there was a time that my boys, they didn't want to go to church. And they were like, ah, I don't need to go to Sunday school. I'm fine or something. I forget what it was. They were tired. They didn't want to go that day. And I said... It's not about you going for you. It's about you going because someone else needs you. And I think if we would all stop showing up because of what we get out of it, out of a life, a job, uh, an event, and we would start showing up because somebody needs what we have to offer, um, we could change our culture quite a bit. Yeah, I agree with that. So what is it that you see are our weaknesses in our culture that that need to be addressed a little bit more? And, and how are you working with the, within your purpose to address things in the, in the external world of you and your family? Yeah, good question. And I think that's something that, that's a question I'll probably keep getting redefined for myself. But the biggest, the biggest thing I see in our society is just the fragmentation. Families are fragmented. People are fragmented. You know, like we were talking earlier about in, at your work, you act one way. At um, your church, you act another. At your home, another. And you really find that rare space to be who you are, right? You're trying to um, get approval or acceptance, and, and it fragments us. And then we, on top of that, we have the digital age, like you mentioned. And while it can connect us with people we never would have been connected with before, it also makes us blind to the people right in front of us. Um, I have a granddaughter that we, my daughter and I often say, she sees the invisible people. And that's why I love spending time with her and going out in the community with her because she'll find the invisible people for me to say hello to. What are invisible um, people? Invisible people. The people you pass all the day that, that you forgot about. The the woman that's standing in line in front of you and her face is tear-stained. Or the child that has bruises on them. Or the old person that can't put their groceries in a car. You know, the invisible people that we are too busy to even notice how many we passed. How do you connect so, with an invisible person? Take my granddaughter with me. So, <laughs> you know, Emmy doesn't have everything on her mind that I have, right? She's not thinking of oh, the next project or the next deadline or what's for dinner and what child to get to what appointment. And she's not thinking all that. And so the beauty of it is that she sees invisible people. And, and I just have to listen to her. Who's she saying hello to? Who's she making conversation to? And stop, pause what I'm doing, turn around and acknowledge that person too. So everyone needs a Miss Emmy in their life. But I think, um, I guess I would, if you don't have a Miss Emmy, just start looking at children and watch children. Who are children looking at? Who are they talking to? And maybe that's someone I need to acknowledge. So what do you think about, yeah, Topeka and the sense of community here? How would you rate it? Is, it? is it doing well here? It seems like sometimes um, it's hard to meet new people here compared to maybe in California where you're in a more metropolitan area and you're passing by lots of people. 
what about Topeka draws out that sense of connection with, with other people that are invisible to you? Um, meeting people and sense of community is really a mindset. So it's not that it can do better in a rural or suburban or metropolitan area. It doesn't matter. Um, in California, one of the things I loved is the diversity. Also, live on 40 acres up near Yosemite National Park, so I wasn't right in the middle of like Los Angeles or San Francisco or something like that. Right. Um, so I really think that community is wherever we are. It's just our mindset that we're going to acknowledge people and that people are valuable. Strangers are only strangers until we get to meet them. So um, listen to someone's story. We're, our family is part of a group called Candle in the Window. And so what that is, is it's an organization that um, allows you to put your home, you pay, I forget, it's really minor, maybe $30 or something a year. And then when you travel, you go on that directory and you can pick a home to stay with. And that home will tell you, we can only provide meals or we have meals and rooms and beds for four people or 10 people or sleeping bags are welcome or something like that. But you're inviting people you've never met before to come and stay at your house and enjoy a meal and get to know you. And so we do that. And it's something I love doing. We've met so many wonderful people. That's how you people. travel? Um, I don't travel that way, but I allow other people to travel to my home that way. Wow. So, yes, I could. I could travel that way. But really, I mean, I don't know anyone that would have room for 10 children. So it's kind of like Airbnb meets your your whole family table yeah yeah right yeah (laughs) and so um so i love that so no matter where you are you can be community oriented as far as how topeka rates i think it's about more rating ourselves as people not rating the city because we're making up the city and it starts small my family and i we went and we just sat out on topeka boulevard played that big chess set that they have out there We had so many people come up to us that were just encouraged by us being out there, you know, seeing all these kids and grandparents and parents out there. Um, if we all start doing that, that could make a big impact on our community yeah. and our health. So, yeah. What do you do about the winter time? Well, winter time in the Midwest is much different than it is in California. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, for for winter time, we do travel. Um, other places but our community here is at church um, at home you know going to events with the kids with school and stuff but yeah when it's raining and snowing it's hard to do so you just do it when you can so remember when it's this mindset for you you've got all your life to live this way so don't feel like you have to make a checklist and okay I have to be at three events this year or you know whatever your goals are right this You're is, not ever rushing. No, this is you living presently in the moment. We just had the wedding, right, with um, Harry, Prince Harry, right, or mm-hmm. H- Harry, yeah, and uh, Meghan Markle. Yeah. Okay, all right, I got my names there. And my son showed me a picture of all these people that were crowded taking their cell phone pictures of them going by in their carriage, yeah. except this older woman who is just standing gawking and admiring them as they walked by with no electronics, no nothing. And he said, you know, this was the most profound picture of somebody living in the moment. And if you think about it, who captured the most that day, right? Because we can't capture the emotion. We can't capture the experiences with our phones. Our phones will take a picture to give us a memory. But people, if we didn't live in that moment, what's the memory of? A pretty dish, a pretty meal, right? Um, an iconic 
you know, event or memorial. We have to be present. Yeah, I love traveling with people and inevitably there's someone who loves taking pictures and I just like go the whole trip without taking it. It was like, oh, here's my like Facebook account. You can send them here. Yeah. And it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got all. both. Yeah. So that's cool. So yeah, knowing that, that sense of eternity and like kind of, it seems like you should have a great deal of patience. You're not ever rushing to, to make deadlines happen. Maybe you are on a short term basis, but mm-hmm. within your purpose, it's all up to God. Right. Like. right. Um, that must be a very comfortable feeling. How has that spilled over to other people in your life? You, you kind of alluded how it spilled over to your family, but how has living your purpose had a tremendously positive impact on someone else? You know, that's something I don't think we'll ever know or understand yeah. until we stand before the Lord and we're able to really see what our life did. Um, and I'm not living for the impact or the acknowledgement right now to see it. It's not tangible. I do have people that write me and say thank you. I do have women that still call me their mentor, and it's been 20 years later, and they're like, you're my mentor mom. Um, And so I get satisfaction in that. I have kids, you know, like I was sharing with you before the podcast, that we've invested in interstreet children and bring them into our home and and knowing that they're okay, and they knew that somebody was, um, that saw them. Somebody saw them and saw them of value. So there's things like that, but I don't think we'll ever know until that day. So you just keep going, you know, because I'm not doing it for any reward now. You know, it doesn't matter if anyone in the world sees. This is about me living my purpose. So why are you in business? Business is a very, like, uh, I need a reward now. Right. Earthly reward. Yeah. And you put a lot of time, energy, and stress into that. And you're not only, like, co-own a business is that right you I and do. your husband both I do and then you also do business consulting I do yeah. right what's the interest with, how does business play into all of this right my husband and I own a multi-million dollar trucking company and we started out and um, where my husband decided to go into a business that was commission only and so we weren't guaranteed a paycheck and so I did all the marketing on that. And within a few years, we grew to over 1.5 million. I think when, before our third year, I think first or second year, I don't know wow. for sure. Um, and so it grew very fast. And uh, since then, I've stayed in the business, taken sabbaticals at different times to focus on other projects or the family or whatever it might be that I needed my attention more. Remember, finding harmony, right? Yeah. And so... Um, Right now, I'm at a season where I'm engaged in the business and I'm helping set up some um, things corporate-wise so that we could become a better place for our drivers and our drivers' lives could be enhanced, not just by employment, but in relationships and financially and stuff. So I'm involved in that with my husband. I'm also a certified John Maxwell trainer, which is all about investing and pouring your life into other people, about leadership. That's the guy who wrote the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yes. Yes. And so I'm a certified trainer for him and for his products. So corporations will call me in and I can speak to them about the 15 laws of growth or communicating or putting their dream to the test, like for small businesses. Um, And so that's what I do as far as consulting. That's very neat. Yeah. Tell me more. Like That sounds like something I want to do. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. Um, you get called into a business. I, I say there's normally two reasons why a business will call me. One, because they need to scale back and um, they need help doing it in a mindful way so that their employees don't feel 
abandoned. I mean, it's a hard time when a company has to make cuts. And so that's one reason. Another reason a company will call me is because they're growing. And if they're smart, they know to call a consultant when they grow because they have to grow strategically. And they have to have an outside voice to show them things they wouldn't have seen. Uh, One of the things that's really common, a lot of people will say, you know, I'm having a really hard time writing this sales copy or I'm having a really hard time knowing the right decision to make in in marketing and we just need somebody to come in and help us. And they kind of feel like they lacked in some way, like they didn't have the answers and now they're having to pay somebody that has more experience or has um, better vision than they do. And that's not it at all. And what I share with people is 99% is not it. (laughs) It's a collaborative idea. Yes, it is. It's that collaboration. It's also hard to read the label of a bottle when you're inside the bottle. And so when I come in, I'm not in the bottle. I'm not stuck inside there. I'm on the outside. And it's so much easier for me to read the label to you and let you know what your customers are saying or what your customers are seeing. Yeah. And what does that process look like to to be able to be trained to be a John C. Maxwell trainer. The training process yeah. to get trained. Um, you go through courses with um, John Maxwell. They have them online. And then you go to a certification event. It's like four-day event. And you go through some personal training with them. So, yeah. Well, personal as long as <laughs> it's a whole bunch of people. I think when I was there, there was about three to 500 of us. So, oh. but, yeah. So, you talk about how you help businesses with that growth process. Mm-hmm. And you it seems like you're really trying to nail down the, the message that they're trying to communicate. Absolutely. Clarity of message. Right. Um, what are some good questions to start asking yourself if you're a business owner in a growth phase to, to get more clarity about the message? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is just can you say your message in five seconds? You know, can you tell me in one very short sentence, I, I like to say at least 14 words or less, what you do. What does your company do? And if you can tell me that very quickly then you might have it nailed down. Um, But you can always um, need help of a copywriter to help you with different power words or trigger words, you know, things like that. So, yeah. But just kind of think of how long it takes you to say what you do. You know, if it's complicated, if if that's in your sentence at all, it's not clear enough. If, well, what I do is unique, and that's normally a lead in for meaning that your message is not clear. Definitely, you you yeah. have to be able to say it very clearly and to the point, 14 words or less. Yeah. So, so my podcast message is to help others develop their courage so wholeheartedly pursue their purpose and unleash their truest potential. Wow. Tell me about the clarity of that. Is that clear? Is it abstract? Is it? Yeah. Well, I think what happens there is that you get so many words that your audience or the person listening would have a hard time putting value on which word. Okay. So what I would encourage if I was to talk to someone like that is find the word that you really feel or two that really sum up what all of those words said. And so... um, Like, I can't repeat it back to you, right? Develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose. Okay. And unleash. All right. What if you stopped right there, right? Develop the purpose to unleash your full potential. Is that what you said? Develop the courage. Okay. To wholeheartedly pursue your purpose. Okay. And unleash your truest potential. All right. Um, Yeah. Let's write it down after the podcast. And I'll show you how to diagram it and we can fix it. Yeah. 
<laughs> fix it, not fix it, but you know, just make it more clear. Because what happens is you're talking to me, my brain is connecting to different words you're saying, yeah. but if you say one really powerful word and another one back to back, I don't know which one to choose. Mm. And so you just want to, you just want to clarify that and make it simple. Yeah. Okay. For the brain. Cool. Yeah. So your husband and you ran this trucking business together. We still do. You started it basically out of necessity because right. you got laid off in. No, way. no, no. Um, he, he, he yeah, he, in California, we left there and right. he came to work at Frito-Lay here for a year. And then um, the Lord just started shutting doors there. It was like he wasn't getting the work. He was on extra board, uh, which means, you know, when they have extra work, you come in. And so it just kind of became a situation where somebody else offered him um, a job. They said, hey, if you ever go back into business for yourself, we had been in business for ourselves a long time before uh, with one truck. My husband drove there in California only. And they said, if you ever do that again, we have some loads for you. And, but it's commission only. And that's very unique to the trucking industry. And so that's when it took into us working together and marketing and working on that. Yeah. So, yeah. Cool. That's awesome that you figured out that skill. And did you have a business background before? No, nursing is what I used to <sighs> wow. do. Right. Yeah. But what do you do? You take some of the principles you learn from nursing and apply it over? Or you Funny. you go deep into studying about business? Or yeah, deep, deep into knowledge? study. Deep into study. And I'm constantly learning. I read about one to two books a week. And so wow. I'm constantly reading. And, and you read the Bible every day. That's right. Yeah. So and you're reading hours a yep. day. And I do have, normally in the evening, I go to bed and that's what I do is I read every night. Um, and then in the morning I read the Bible. So... Um, I also take classes from anywhere. So like I was telling you about the cello, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I'm always challenging myself to learn a new skill every year. And so I'll hire people to teach me or I'll go to class. So, yeah. Wow. So what are, what are maybe your top three books related to the topic of purpose that you could recommend people listening? After the Bible, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I would encourage people to read hmm, Bob Goff, his books. I've never heard of that name. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, okay, I like him a lot. What's the name um, of that? Bob Goff, and let's see, he just came out with a new book. I everybody, but can't remember his new book tanner you're gonna have to look that one up for your listeners but the the first book he had was love does and it's what love does love is not a word we say it does something it takes action and it's a book all about that and finding purpose um excellent book so i would wow. recommend i would recommend that um i would recommend the john maxwell intentional living book excellent book and any of the laws of growth book, like 15 Laws of Growth, that's an excellent resource also. There's so many. There's there's so many different talented people that have shared themselves in writing like that with us. But those are three favorites that I can think of right off the top of my head. Bob Goth and the two John Maxwell books? Oh, yeah. Okay. You want a third author? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. And uh, the third author I would pick would be... Hmm... I'm going to go home and regret this. I'm going to be like, why didn't I pick so-and-so? Um, I don't know. Let's what if do your it third one is like um, yeah. a different medium, like yeah. a movie or a podcast or a documentary? or a 
I love, yes, I love listening to Michael Hyatt. And so I'm part of his university platform. I use his focus journal and planner. Um, so Michael Hyatt would definitely be one that I share. I'm not familiar with him. What is he? He's about? all about leadership. And so, yeah, you would like him. Thank you for those resources. Like, I'm not used to getting brand new names like that now that I'm in episode whatever. You're like my 27th interview. And oh. even before this, I think I've been reading tons of people in this. Yeah, do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, I have really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, the weather has been perfect for us. And I have really had fun talking about these things. So thank you for allowing me to do that. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question or something you want help working through? Do you need support in doing what it's going to take to live your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our wonderful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this episode or the podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. If you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as the purposeful people and communities I'm a part of around the world, follow the podcasting journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast. You can connect with our purpose-seeking community on Facebook at People of Purpose by liking and following our page. Know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose opportunities, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration and media I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me, to nourish your personal path of purpose. For the ultimate engagement, join our intentional group Purpose Seekers from the Facebook page. Join in longer-form discussions, link up with accountability partners, and share in opportunities and challenges to better know and grow in your purpose. Send me a direct message on either Facebook or Instagram if you want to talk privately and receive personalized guidance on how to raise your sails and write your ship. Come forth with your biggest dreams and aspirations, and I will do my best to connect you with the necessary resources and mentors from my network to start your trek along your personal path of purpose. Cheers, and here's to becoming 